Last time we were in 1 Samuel, we were in 1 Samuel chapter 10. So I want to bring you back up to how do we get to chapter 10 and what will happen then in chapter 11. So if you remember in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, the people approach uh, Samuel and demand a king. Samuel's sons were not following the Lord and the people had enough. They wanted a king. They wanted a king now. And if you remember, we, we talked through this. Having a king was not a bad thing. It, it wasn't a sinful thing for the people. God even declared that it would happen earlier in their history. He would encourage them that this would happen in the future. But this situation in which the people approached Samuel was much different. They wanted a king just like the other nations. This is a very low point in the history of Israel. They were rejecting God's way of being king over them. And so Samuel takes the rest of chapter 8 to, to warn them of this, but they wouldn't relent. And so God says he will give them a king. And in chapter 9, we read that Saul is selected as king. He was a very kingly-looking man. If you remember this, tall, handsome, he looked the part. And in the chapter follows Saul and his search for missing donkeys and God using that and his sovereignty to bring him to Samuel. And there's this private anointing that happens in chapter 10. And at the end of chapter 10, Saul is introduced to the people. Although, if you remember in that story, it, it took some help from God, right? Where was Saul? You might remember. He was hidden in the baggage, unsure of what this meant uh, to be introduced as king. But the people respond just as God said they would, declaring that Saul would be their leader. And they desired to have this worldly king more than a heavenly king. And, and in chapter 10, they, they shout, long live the king, a declaration of their, their intent to follow Saul. And then later in chapter 10, in verse 25, Samuel was teaching them of what this kingship would be, that, that Saul would still be subordinate under God in his kingship. And the, and the chapter ends in chapter 10 with some interesting details. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 10, starting at verse 26. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. Verse 27, but some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Saul held his peace. Some worthless fellows. Yes, we're going to pick up on these worthless fellows. They come in again in chapter 11. So we're going to read all of chapter 11. Desire is to walk through these 15 verses this morning. So follow with me as I read 1 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition, I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter to the ears of the people and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. 
He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is that that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death for this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. It's become the chapter 11. There's a crisis for the people. There's a savior that will come on the scene and, and, and bring about a victory that will happen. And last, there'll be a kingdom that will be renewed. And so this is my outline this morning, four points. The present crisis, the needed savior, the swift victory, and the renewed kingdom. So let me pray, and we'll, we'll dive in here, 1 Samuel chapter 11. I'll pray for you, you pray for me, and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the time of worship that we can gather together as the body of Christ. And now as we open up your word, God, I ask that you would teach your people seated here this morning, that you would guide and lead them to bring understanding of what, we, what your word says. And most of all, God, that you would bring, that you would give all the glory to yourself and change us as we leave this place. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. So first is the present crisis. What is a crisis? A crisis is an event uh, that is going or is expected to lead into an unstable or dangerous situation affecting an individual or group or community or a whole society, as the dictionary says. And what we read here in 1 Samuel chapter 11, what I just read here, is most definitely a crisis. It's an unstable situation. It's dangerous. It's, it's affecting more than just one, but a large group. And so we would classify this as a crisis. And what will the people do in this crisis? Well, we, we read this already in chapter 11 here. As, as Nashite the Ammonite comes and, and besieges Jabesh-Gilead, the people, what do they do? They, they respond in a way to, to, with a fear of unsure what to happens next, and they want to go find a savior. You know, this is a, a, a critical point in their history. Saul returns home to Gibeah after chapter 10. Nothing seems to seem to have changed in his life at this point, as, as far as functioning as a king. Nothing's changed. Uh, we don't know how much time has passed between chapter 10 and chapter 11. Uh, there's trouble brewing, though, east of Jordan. And we, and we learn of this new character, Nahash, the Ammonite. 
He has surrounded Jabesh Gilead, the fortified town about 20 miles south of the Sea of Galilee, two miles east of Jordan. And there's some evidence that Nahash was on a tear to destroy all of Israel east of the Jordan. In our Bible, we don't read all those details. We don't have all those details. In my research this week, I came across some additional material that might set the stage. Nahash here, the king of the Ammonites, he was an oppressive man. Not impressive, oppressive. He would gouge out the right eye of his enemies. We find out in chapter 12 that this is true. Nahash had been, had been a thorn in the side of Israel for some time. And we still don't know how long after Saul was introduced as king, but there, some of these sources that I've come across, it is, as much as a month has transpired. And some of the people are in the midst of a crisis. And Nahash comes on the scene. Nahash's name means serpent. What a great name, right? I mean, can you imagine the, the, the couple as they're pregnant with a boy saying, what should we name him? Serpent. I can't imagine that. And so Saul's first test as their new king is to defeat a serpent. But before that would happen, we see the scene. And the people are afraid. They, they know that they're outmatched and desperate. And so what do they do? Well, they offer to make a covenant with this man. It, it's, it's shocking, really. They, they are, in fact, asking Nahash to become their king. These people don't know which way is up anymore. Fear is driving their lives. Remember, they, they asked for a king from Samuel, and so now so quickly they're turned to another to be their king. They, they just want out of whatever distress that they're in. This, this offer to, to Nahash is troubling, to say the least. They, they say nothing of what's transpired with Saul. And the failure of the people of Jabesh to call on Saul raises some questions about his kingship. It seems as though they, they desire to make Nahash their king. Uh, it's a, a massive no vote for Saul as their king. When their back's against the wall, they, they want the easiest way out. And, and they want out of their trouble. And maybe it's making Nahash their king. But Nahash won't make it easy for them. No, he has a condition. He, he isn't just interested in just Jabesh, he wants all of Israel. And he will agree to this only if he is allowed to gouge out the right eye of every person. And by gouging out the right eye, Nahash would make them unfit for battle, but they would still be fit for slavery. According to Josephus, warriors of that day fought in a formation with their interlocked shields so that their left eye was covered by the shield. He was essentially asking for them to be blinded. They wouldn't be able to fight him. And he was mocking them. He, he wants to humiliate them, as the text says. William Blakey comments on this. He says, the mutilated condition of that poor one-eyed community would be a ground for despising the whole nation. It would be a token of the humiliation and degradation of the whole Israelite community. And by bringing disgrace to the people, he was, in fact, trying to be, bring disgrace upon the Lord. And the elders respond, right? Give us seven days. Give us seven days to, to send messengers out into the territory of Israel. We're, we're going to find someone, hopefully, to save us. Don't know who that is. And, and really, my gut reaction when I read this is it sounds pathetic. 
Remember what, Saul, what Samuel said in chapter 10, they, they rejected their God, who will save them? And they don't cry out to God to save them. They don't even call for the Ark of the Covenant to come and save them, as they did before. They, they don't send for Saul to come and save them. They probably don't believe that Saul can actually do anything at this point. Saul didn't even enter their minds Instead, it's a vague hope that someone might save them. They, they might come across someone. So Nahash, he, he agrees to this offer. Yeah, sure, I'll give you seven days. Go for it. He's confident. He, he believes he has them right where he wants them. And, and they're in crisis mode. They're not thinking clearly. What do we do when we're in a crisis? I had to stop and reflect on this question this week. What's my immediate reaction when a crisis has come into my life? I know that when crises come into our lives, our, our fears are, are brought to the surface. Fears that we didn't fully understand or even recognize are now thrusted to the forefront. Now, do you understand what's underneath all those fears? Under, under all those fears, even the fear of losing an eye to a, a madman is really the fear of failure. The fear of failure comes from the fact that all of us have a spiritual security blanket. All of us have these spiritual security blankets or, or spiritual life rafts that we are clinging to so that we don't sink. Those things in our lives that we need to have so that we feel like we're going to be okay. And we all have them. In, in the business realm, we have the security blanket, a, a certain comfort zone. If people start to ask us questions or we hang around people who have more education or more experience, we, we tend to get afraid. We, we pull back. Why? Because we, we see that our life raft is, is getting some holes poked in it. We're, we're afraid that we might look bad. We're afraid of failure. So we run from it. We, fear then drives us. In the athletic realm, I played sports in, for years in high school and college, and I remember very distinctly in high school playing tennis, and, and the certain people that we enjoyed to play against that were competitive, but on some level that were, were similar skill level. And then there's all others that were going to cause angst. You could just watch them warm up and think, I don't want anything to do with them. Because if they hit it there, I'm not going to be able to hit it back. And, 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 and you begin to, to have this fear of, of knowing your limits and not wanting anything to do with it. And fear dominates. The same for us is socially. We are, we're, we are around certain people. And we enjoy being just around those certain people. And so we have a social comfort zone. But when we step out of that or on others that are different than us, we begin, become scared or uncomfortable because we run out of resources then. Our fears surround those things which we make rather than God, and we make security blankets. Our fears surround our idols. For example, money is what makes you feel, if money is what makes you feel secure, if it's your comfort zone, and so your fears then surround that. Your, your fears surround the loss of it. Your fears surround whether you have enough of it. Or for another example, parents that are here. In this example, mothers. Your, your children can become your security blanket. 
them doing well in life is now your security. And then your fears will surround your children. I mean, fathers are most definitely important in raising the kids at home, but moms carry this weight much differently than dads do. Moms have a tendency to place their own worth in their kids. Mom's fears are most easily seen in the relation to how their kids are doing. For men, it's usually their career. You have to perform well. You have to do better than the competition. Your, your fears then surround that. Your, your fears are always attached to those things which you make your security rather than God. And they attach to your idols. And therefore, fear is always really, really about fear of failure. Can you this morning, as a good Bible student, diagnose the fears of the Israelites here in 1 Samuel? I mean, they feared that their safety would disappear, sure. They, would, they feared that they would be mistreated by Nahash, that they would be slaves and so much more. But I feel that they, there's something greater. They fear that they will lose their independence. Their security blanket wasn't God. Their security blanket was independence. Not just independence from evil rulers like Nahash. They desired independence from any rule. They were rejecting their rescuer, even though they, they needed saving. And this is important to understand as we keep walking through this chapter. And it leads to my, my second point, the needed savior. As we make our way through the chapter, the author wastes no time in giving us details of what happens next. And we're taken to the next thing in verse 4. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. And so they come to Saul's town, but they don't come to see Saul. He's there, but no one's looking for him. And if you remember in chapter 9, Saul would be the one chosen by God to save his people. But at this point, the, the people either didn't know this or they didn't believe it. And they don't send for Saul. They don't even look for Saul. They just weep. And Saul hears of it as he comes in from the field working. It seems as though that not much has changed in Saul's life. As he's, after he was introduced as king, he's out working in the field. And our impression of Saul at this point is that he hasn't done anything at this point kingly. And he comes back into town to find the people weeping and, and asks, what is wrong with the people? Why are they, why are they weeping? And so they told him the news. Violence has been threatened to God's people. And the one anointed by God to be their king, to save their people, knows nothing of this. And we we're left wondering if anyone really thought anything of Saul at this point. But the situation is about to change. Saul, after hearing what has happened, responds by the power of God. It wasn't Saul's initiative or the people, it was God. In verse 6, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Friends, this is a, a God-inspired rage. This is a holy rage. This is a Spirit-filled, righteous anger that, that controls Saul. This is a divine influence on Saul. And, and with this rushing of the Spirit, Saul is controlled with a holy zeal to make war on this evil tormentor to his people. And God has gripped Saul. And, and the anger you see in him is God's holy anger towards sin. What does Saul do? He calls for bold and decisive action. And he's installed by God to lead his people and to establish his authority and to respond to this 
time and, and desperation, and he acts. In verse 7, he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. He's going to lead the people. They're desperate for a leader. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, Saul spoke with authority, just as God's servants should speak boldly in proclaiming the truth of God. And Saul speaks with authority. But just so you know, all human authority is borrowed. It's never original with us. He speaks for God. And even in his bold declarations, it is God who brings the change. It's always God. It's always the Spirit of God who makes people willing to repent. It never depends on man. And it wasn't Saul here, it was God. And just as Saul's holy rage was brought about by God, so also the people's response to Saul's leadership was brought about by God. And so what will God do through Saul and the people? That leads to the third point, the swift victory. So now all the people are, are moved by God and Saul moves to assemble the army. It's a large army, the text says, that there were 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000. And the people respond to the leadership of, of Saul and they, and they gather together and they send word to Jabesh. Tomorrow, by the time the sun is high, you shall have salvation. And the people are glad. Wouldn't you be glad? They came with good news, the news of a savior for the people. Not only had the dread of the Lord, the fear of God fallen on them, but now a new confidence has come. The promise of salvation before midday the next day means that Saul and the people would have to travel some 20 miles to, to cross the Jordan Valley to Jabesh-Gilead during the night so that they could have this surprise attack. This is good news for the people. It's better than they hoped for. They expected the worst. But there would be bloodshed. And with some craftiness, the Jabesh people gave the Ammonites the impression that their search had failed. They say in verse 10, Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give, our, give, give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And they paint a picture that they will come and surrender themselves to the Ammonites. The effect of this message was to draw out the, the forces of Nahash with some overconfidence. And then in verse 11, The next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that, that, so that no two of them were left together. The morning watch would be sometime between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. And the three companies probably came into the Ammonite camp from three different directions. And the details of the battle, we don't need to belabor. It was clear that they would be defeated, that they were defeated. And the striking contrast, as Israel came out as one man, he says, and the surviving Ammonites were scattered so that no two of them were left together. The, the victory was given to the people from God. And he would again make good on his promise to bring salvation. Salvation came not because Israel had a king, but because the king had Yahweh's spirit. It's not the institution of the kingship, but the power of the spirit that brings deliverance through the people. 
You know, it's said, I've read this a number of times, that the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, every time he would step into the pulpit to preach, would pause and pray that God would send his spirit, which explains why the remarkable effectiveness of his preaching changed lives only happen through the spirit of God. Zechariah 4, 6 says, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Whenever God's people resort to worldly tactics, they begin to fail in power. But whenever God's spirit comes to believers, we're built up in power and grace. And so now with the king in place, serving God, victory has come to the people. Let's see how the chapter ends. Fourth is the renewed kingdom. When we reach verse 12, we come to a sigh of relief from the people. The, the threat of Nahash, the Ammonite, has been neutralized. They're no longer in danger. The crisis is over. It's become obvious to everyone now that Saul is the, is the, the leader of God's people. And the people now want to dis- distance themselves from the worthless fellows from chapter 10 that question Saul's ability to lead. He says in verse 12, chapter 11, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Those men are the ones that we ended in chapter 10, the unwilling to have Saul as their king. And the people knew it. But they weren't the only ones. It seems as though the doubt had spread throughout the people. It seems many had doubted Saul's ability to lead. That's why he wasn't the first one that was contacted when the threat came. But now the people want to hang blame, and they want to bring out the men that said these things. Now listen, the the human habit of shifting blame and pointing a finger is as old as Genesis 3. And we see it again here. But Saul filled with the Spirit, has a different response to those that rejected his leadership. In verse 13, Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And this is an important moment. This day would be different. On a different day, those worthless fellows would reject their king that God gave them. But this day would be different. It would be different because on this day, God would work out their salvation by delivering them at the hands of the Ammonites. And the worthless fellows had asked, how can this man save us? And Saul understood in this moment that the the deliverance of God's people was not by Saul, but by the Lord. And Saul here is pointing to God. Saul could not save Israel on his own. And this would be soon forgotten by Saul. But for a moment, for this day, Saul rightly points to God. And the grace that Saul shows his opposers is impressive. I believe this is most definitely the high point for Saul's life and for his reign as king. His desire that the people should honor God and not himself was was correct. He got it right. But now it's Samuel's time to speak. We haven't heard from this chapter yet. Verse 14, 
Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. They would go to Gilgal and this was certainly an appropriate place to go. One commentator said, since Gilgal had served both as an administrative and religious center and was a border settlement linking the tenuously aligned southern and northern tribes, it was fitting site to reestablish Saul's claim to kingship over all Israel. And Gilgal's name was meant to be a perpetual reminder that through the Exodus and, and the safe entry of the people of Israel into the land of Canaan, God had removed the reproach and the disgrace of Egypt from his people. And now again, this, this has happened. God has delivered his people from possible disgrace at the hands of Nahash the Ammonite. But there's a significant phrase here in verse 14 that they would renew the kingdom, he says. It's worth our time to camp at this thought. I believe it's fair to say that what would happen at Gilgal is the key to understanding the story of Saul. And I would be so bold to say it's the key to understanding the book of 1 Samuel. And there are two questions that, that I feel need to be answered in this, this statement. First, what kingdom did Samuel want the people to renew? And second, what was required for the people to renew this kingdom? Kingdom here is a, is a big word. It's a, it's a weighty word. It usually means kingship or kingly office or, or royalty. And so when I ask what kingdom is he talking about, I'm asking which kingship is he talking about here? Is he talking about Saul's kingship or is he talking about God's kingship? You know, early in chapter 10, the word kingdom is used to describe Saul's reign as king. So in one aspect, Samuel's re again referring to the kingdom of Saul, the anointed king of God's people. However, at a deeper level, the Lord was still Israel's true king. And the people intended to reject the Lord as their king, but God wasn't about to give them up. They were still his people. Even in 1 Samuel 10, 25, Samuel told the people about the justice of the kingdom, about the rights and the duties of the king, and wrote them in a book and was laid before the Lord. And there's a, a subtle ambiguity here. Whose kingdom did Samuel write about? It, it certainly had some information about how Saul would perform in this role as king, but ultimately it was God's kingdom. It's his kingdom, and the heavenly king would reign, and the earthly king would have to submit under him. And this is the only way that it would work. I don't believe we need to choose between the two of these in this text, but we should appreciate the, the subtle ambiguity and realize that the kingdom ultimately belongs to God, and yet Saul had a significant role as an earthly king. And so when, when Samuel calls the people to come and to renew the kingdom, I believe he's asking for both. Recognize the choice of God and Saul as their earthly king and reaffirm their allegiance to God as their supreme king. Both. And this would be the only healthy way for Israel to have an earthly king. So if we can understand the, the nuance of which the kingdom he's referring to, we can then look at what it is required for the people to renew this kingdom. At one level, Samuel is referring to their allegiance to Saul as their king, not all lived in agreement that Saul was chosen by God to be their king. Remember the worthless fellows. They still existed, and, so, and they seemed to even influence others. So now that Saul's ability to save had been so powerfully demonstrated before the people, it was fitting for Samuel to call the people together to renew the kingdom of Saul. 
That is to reaffirm the decision of God to place Saul in this position. And this is more in line with agreeing with God that Saul is in fact the one God has chosen for them instead of looking at Saul as their savior. But I don't believe that this was all that Samuel was trying to communicate with this renewal ceremony. Underneath all of this, there was still a problem that had been behind the push for a king to begin with. The fact that they desired to be rid of God as their king. Do you, do you see the, the, the subtlety here? Samuel's call to renew the kingdom was more than Saul in recognizing his abilities. It was about God. The kingdom that was most need of renewal was the kingdom of God. And so this, this renewal Samuel's calling for was a fundamental re-establishment of the people's acceptance of God as their true king. And Samuel, go to, he'll go to great lengths to explain this even more in chapter 12. And Lord willing, we'll look at that next week. Well, the chapter ends here in verse 15. It says that all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. All the people go to Gilgal. It, it seems from this verse that, that now Saul is finally made king. And if you remember in chapter 10, there was the secret anointing that was for the benefit of Saul and then the pronouncement of the one chosen before the people. But it was clear now at this moment that Saul is king. It wasn't clear at the beginning of chapter 11. Saul was not acting as king. What was Saul doing? He was out in the field. But now things have changed. In verse 15, they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. He was made king before the Lord. He was not made king like all the nations, all the other nations have done it. He was made king before, in the presence of, literally in the face of God, their king. And Saul's kingdom was set in its proper relation to the Lord's kingdom. And the peace offering signified a fellowship and a communion with God and with his people. At this point, rejoicing would be fitting. Their relationship is, is made right with, with their king and with their God. But ultimately, their security blanket should be God. And their fear should have no place any longer. I want to circle back around here again about this issue of fears. Because the one thing that sticks out to me in this chapter is how similar we are to God's people. and How often we rely on our security blankets. When you're afraid of anything, what you're really saying is God is small, smaller than this. This, this is bigger. This is more than God can handle. When you fear something, whether that's a lacking of money because it's your security or you're fearful that you won't have all of your good looks later in life, or you're fearful that you won't have that someone that you so desperately need, that relationship, and all those things, that's your security. No matter what it is, don't you see what you're doing is you're giving more weight to that thing than you are to God. And you're treating him with contempt. How do we move past fear? Well, to put it in a simple way, thinking. Thinking will get rid of fear. Fear is the absence of thinking. 
Fear is the absence of thinking about God. Fear is the absence of thinking accurately and biblically about God. Fear is the act of forgetting who God is and what God has done. We fear because we forget. You know, in this this story, it wasn't too long ago that the people experienced the supernatural power of God when he brought back the ark. It wasn't too long ago that the people were there with Samuel and as they placed the Ebenezer to, in honor of God's deliverance of them. And they feared because they forgot. And if you're fearful today, God is going to let you sink. You have forgotten the miracle of your own salvation. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if if God has given you his son, and if God has saved you from the hand of the Philistines, Israel, if he's saved you, if he has changed you, if he has supplied everything for you, then how in the world is he going to let you stay that way? How is he going to drop you? And he gave you the car, is he going to withhold the keys? I mean, the point is, if he's going to give you all of this, why would he stop now? Why? See, we've forgotten the, the miraculous. You've forgotten what he saved you from. You know, this is one way you can tell whether you're a real, genuine Christian or whether you're a moral, religious person. You see, a moral, religious person doesn't think that their salvation is a miracle. I mean, you ask a moral, religious person if they're saved, and they say, yeah, I'm saved. I try to obey the Bible. I go to church. I live for God. I try to give a little something back to the church and the offering. My kids like coming to church with me. Of course I'm a Christian. But you don't hear any awe, any wonder of salvation in their voice. I'm a Christian. I was once a rebellious sinner. I was lost. Completely hopeless. I was a child when I turned to Christ, but I deserved hell. I had a black heart. And when you know this about yourself, and you remember what you're saved from, you turn from fear and you turn to Christ where you're hopeless. So maybe it's not that you're not a Christian, but that you've forgotten how amazing it is that you are a Christian. You need to, again, be preaching the gospel to yourself. But there are some of you here today that are self-righteous. You think that the reason God loves you and is giving to you is because you're a good person. And you have no sense of the miraculous. And you're going to be fearful. You will live a scared life. If you are a self-righteous person, if you believe you are where you are because you've done it on your own and your own resources, well, then when you face a situation where your resources run out, you'll be scared. Listen, friends, if you believe you're saved by sheer grace and it's a miraculous thing, then everything else. If, If God has brought me this far, then why won't he help me get past this, he will. We need to trust him. And I'm going to call out to him 
first. I'm going to remember what he has done. I'm going to preach the gospel, the glorious truths of the gospel to myself. You see, friends, you, you, you preach the gospel to yourself. It's, it's not enough to say, don't fear. That doesn't work. Don't say, don't fear, don't fear, don't fear. It's a lot, it's a lot like saying, don't, don't think of the word giraffe. Don't think of the word giraffe. Don't think of the word giraffe. What should you not think of? What? Giraffe. You, you said it, see? I told you not to think of the word giraffe, and yet that's all you thought of. It's the same with fear. And we move past fear when you remember who you are in Christ. You get underneath the fear and you unearth what is really driving your life. And you bring to the surface what your security blanket is. And then you need to repent of it and turn from it and trust God. We need to remember the gospel. You're fearful because you have forgotten this glorious gospel. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you are a forgiven sinner saved by grace alone. And friends, I don't want you to get over that. You can't get over that. Do you remember in the Gospels when Jesus is out in the boat with the disciples? And the storm comes and, and, and Jesus is asleep in the boat. You guys know the story, right? And the disciples, they come and they wake up Jesus and they're frantic. And, and they say to him, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And they're frantic now. Why? Because they have forgotten that Jesus loves them. Because you couldn't be freaking out and at the same time realize that Jesus loves you. And they question it. And they're saying, really, when we're not sure that you really love us, we're not really sure that you're going to protect us. And don't you see, friends, that the, the knowledge of the love of God and the fear cannot coexist. But what does Jesus do? He turns and rebukes the sea, and the sea obeys. And then he turns to them and says, you poor fellows, you just need more faith. I'm going to have to give you more. Let me zap it to you, right? Is that what he says? No. He gets up and he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? What does that mean? You see, these men saw Jesus raise people from the dead. They saw him calm storms. They saw him multiply bread and fish. They saw him turn water into wine and heal men and heal women. And they heard Jesus say time and again that he would always be with them. Even in the ends of the earth, he would never break a promise. Everything he said came true. But the promise, the problem is in this moment, they forgot all of that. They didn't act in faith, they acted in fear. See, faith is not some mystical thing. No, faith is acting on what you know to be true. Faith is thinking. And fear is the absence of thinking. Faith is thinking about God and thinking accurately about him. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, an old preacher, said, faith is refusal to panic. Faith is a refusal to panic. Faith says, I will not be controlled by my circumstances. I'll be controlled by truth. 
And the same Jesus that stood in that boat and calmed the sea, he is here and he is present and he can calm the storms of your life. We need to trust him, friends. Don't be controlled by your circumstances. Be controlled by the truth of God's word. And yet I realize that in a crowd this size, there are some of you that have no faith in God at all. You might call yourself a Christian, but when the rubber meets the road and a crisis comes, there's no evidence of faith in your life. No evidence of faith in God in your life. Instead, you're trusting in yourself. You're you're trusting in your life's work. You're, You're trusting in your knowledge. You're trusting in your good behavior. And friend, may I be blunt with you this morning. If you're not trusting in Christ, if you're just trusting your life's work and your good behavior, it will all disappear one day. And when the crisis comes, you will have only your fears and they won't help. You need a rescuer. You need a savior. And only Christ can come rescue you. So friend, I would encourage you, implore you, in fact, to turn to Christ. To trust in him. He is able to save you. He is able to keep you. Only faith in Christ is sufficient for this life. Only faith in Christ will remove any fear that you have in this life. And I pray that God will give you that faith to believe in him and to trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. And Father, if we're honest with you this morning, We have all struggled in this area. Even daily. Allowing our fears to to dictate and to control our lives. And Father, in that we we have stepped aside from thinking rightly. Either stepped aside from reading your word or studying it or 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 soaking it up, God. Either way, we have, we have stepped aside from you. And we're allowing the situations in our lives to, to dictate what we think and how we act. And God, we need your help. We need your prompting to remember again this glorious gospel that you saved us. We as wretched sinners, unable to Save ourselves. You came and you saved us. You gave us the faith to believe in you, to trust in you. And you changed us. You redeemed us. You you bought us back from the slave market of sin. Father, I pray that we will never get over that, that we will never grow tired of this gospel, that we never grow tired of of remembering that you saved us. May we rehearse that even with ourselves and with our friends and our family. And may the remembering of this cause us again to trust in you when these situations come. And God, we have no promise in your word that we'll have an easy life, a carefree life. But we do have the promise that you'll be with us.
Help us to trust you. And God, I pray for those that are here this morning that do not know you. They are not your child. And God, I pray that you would save them. That you would bring about repentance. That they would turn from their former life and turn to you. That they would trust in you. God, I pray that you would go with us now as we leave this place to serve you in all the different areas of life that you have us. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.